All due respect, you got no fucking idea what it's like to be number one. <laughs> you are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, conversation, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. Before I begin, I wanted to give everyone a little housekeeping update. Most of you that are current with the pod know that I've had to do some episodes solo and have mixed up some of the voices that have done the pod with me over the past couple of seasons. The reason is simple. Scheduling and life. This project has been an independently produced labor of love since the beginning. And come what may, jobs, personal matters, situations, scenarios, pandemics, relocations, timing, all that regularness of life stuff. I'm committed to finishing this thing as strong as I can. I will say that it takes an added layer of energy to book and schedule around other people and adjust for cancellations and make asks from people volunteering their time and energy too. And sometimes that alone just isn't tenable. Believe it or not, preparing a show for four people is very different than preparing one for three. Same goes for two people. And most difficult of all, one person. And our new normal has added in this new layer of time zones and shitty audio on one or multiple mics. So really for efficiency and sanity considerations, many of the Army of One episodes just make the most sense logistically, especially over the last several months and what seems to be the foreseeable future. Now. And this is also me partly trying to find a silver lining and try new things. As the project winds down, I find that there's more I want to get off my chest. More stuff I need to clear out with respect to the show. And that was always what I sought out to do on day one, on the pilot episode with John and Justin, when we thought we would be the only three people who listened. If I told you how many hours I labored over just letting that episode go out into the world, despite having an analog mic compressor that drove me fucking crazy. Some of you would have me committed. Those of you that don't already think I'm completely fucking nuts. Now, after today, we're going to be through five seasons. And I thought I'd have closure or a modicum of it, but I don't. Part of me knew that, but I had to try. So, my reconciliation of that is diving into the remaining episodes as much as I can, putting it all on the floor, if you will, to incorporate this episode's first basketball reference ahead of the opening tip. I'm my own worst critic by a long shot. So the fact that I put this much of myself out there to begin with and dealt with the challenges and frustrations of it along the way, on top of all the other challenges and frustrations of life. The Constellation Prize and counterpoint to it's all a big nothing is my connection with you, the listener. Thank you for continuing to inspire me every day and sending all your messages and theories and music recommendations and interesting ideas on what show should get the Pada Bing treatment 
next. But first, we've got some work to do. This episode is massively personal for me. It's probably the one that connected me to the show in an inseparable way. It's the reason this podcast probably exists. Why I continue to invest incalculable time, resource, and energy to its completion despite bumps and bruises along the way. It was the foundational basis of my communication to David Chase a little over a year ago. In summary, this episode inspires me and propels me. It's sort of a muse. There's no question Van Morrison plays a critical role, too. I was in the middle of a long-distance relationship with my now-wife, Catherine, when this episode aired. And Van Morrison held me together for a lot of those moments we were apart. I know. What happened to solidly unsentimental, right? Just recently, I watched an amazing medical documentary, completely random and unexpected, called Lennox Hill. It's so good, I burned through it in one sitting. During one of the moments, a patient about to undergo a very complicated and dangerous procedure was asked what music he'd like played. In that moment, eyes welled up, I thought about what my answer would be. And I didn't even have to think more than a second. It would be the Astro Weeks album by Van Morrison. Never thought I would watch a documentary about a hospital, let alone recommend it. But there you go. So when I heard Van not once, not twice, but three times this episode, I felt like the show was talking to me, personally. I know that sounds ridiculous. Something like 11 or 12 million people tuned in that night in June. But it never left me. And I actually haven't watched this episode that many times, not compared to say, other episodes. This one has always been special, like a Talisker 30 or something. Some things you open only once or twice. And honestly, I feel like I would be happy if the show had ended right here, as it originally intended. But we know how the story plays out. Like MJ, the Sopranos had to go 6-0 and in the finals. To some extent, I almost don't want to look at this episode through Pot of Bing glasses. I'd rather just be the guy sitting on the bench at the museum staring at the grand painting in front of me, absorbing it, letting it course through my veins, and then moving along to the next thing, and come back and visit a year later. But then I watched it, again, and thought I'd share this with you. HBO Synopsis. In the season five finale, Tony's crew circles the wagons as Johnny Sack turns up the heat. Meanwhile, Carmela counts her blessings. Christopher is freaked out by an unexpected visitor. Benny's connection to the plumbers union comes in handy. AJ demonstrates his business acumen. And Tony ponders whether to execute a sacrifice bunt. Nice touch there. Written by David Chase, Robin Green, and Mitchell Burgess. Directed by John Patterson, the final episode he directed before passing away. He had directed all finales up to this point. 
This episode originally aired June 6, 2004, and I, like so many of you, know exactly where I was. We open on a body bag. Always saw that, knowing that the show was potentially not coming back as us, the audience, inside that body bag. We're dead men walking through this episode. Sean Penn over here. The sound, the metallic hollowness and emptiness of the room, the way that was captured set the tone for this episode. We assume there's going to be a hangover from long-term parking. But this opening frame is a great counterpoint to the infusions of Van Morrison throughout the show. So, we start off claustrophobic. Contrast that with how we end. Free. There's a beautiful nuance happening there. Next, we're on Phil, Johnny Sack, and Jimmy. And it's revealed that it's Billy's body. Phil inspects him, wants him ready for an open casket. And he wants an eye for an eye. He's unrelenting. And his until now stoic menace has this new kinetic energy behind it. Next, we're on Uncle Pat's house in Kinderhook. Decrepit and dark, the image reminds me of a physical fitness metaphor. It takes years to build a body and only weeks or months to break it down. Uncle Pat was the spark plug for that place. And you see that now. Tony B's inside with a girl, a townie, or a recruit from home. He's on watch. She's getting dressed and encouraging him to leave Kinderhook and go to Italy. Michael Corleone and Apollonia over here. TB says he's waiting for his cousin to send the funds so he can go through Canada. I think he's smart enough to know that that's bullshit, especially knowing his IQ and all. And it felt like he's heard this before, and he's just saying something to get her to shut the fuck up about it. There's no electricity in the place. He's using a Coleman camping lantern. I mention that because I just bought a boatload of camping gear so I can take my older son camping this summer. Now, I could have bought a battery-operated LED lamp, keep it simple, clean, and maintenance-free. But upon seeing this again, I opted for the Coleman propane lantern variety. I had one of those as a kid and remember loving it. I plan to walk onto that campsite with that lantern under my arm, like a Virginia ham. Surprisingly, or not, depending on how much you camp, they're more expensive than the modern camping gear which only proves they don't make them like they used to. Final little piece of detail, the roll of toilet paper bedside. The fucking detail. A great metaphor. The show's attention to detail is quite literally down to the placement of the toilet paper. Next, we're on Christopher's mom leaving her house. First time we've seen that exterior, I believe. In real life, it's a place called Parkside Gardens in West Caldwell, near Roseland and Bloomfield Avenues. Phil and his associate approach her. His associate is new, too. Phil's wingman is either a shapeshifter 
where he's auditioning candidates for the role. Watch the windows, he says. What did that mean? Don't break any? Or keep an eye out for onlookers, witnesses? Or Christopher, peeping through? I think it was the latter. She's carrying a mini boombox. How far we've come, right? A portable music device that can play one cassette at a time, but that you have to manually flip to the B-side, to now, where you have 65 million songs on your wrist if you have an iWatch. No wires, no noise pollution. Today's tech even makes the original iPod seem prehistoric. But seeing Joanne's device did make me think what tape I would have had in there were it mine. The one I came up with was one of the few tapes I remember owning, the Temple of the Dog album. I always think of Carmela on the Wooden Jesus track, where Chris Cornell sings, Wooden Jesus, I'll cut you in on 20% of my future sin. Inside, Chris hears Phil's voice and jumps off the couch. The same way we all do when we're trying to hide inside from the outside world. Or in my case, most times, a chatty neighbor who always wants to talk when he passes by with his dog that I swear is a lineal descendant of Cosette. She always wants to come in for warmth. Phil tells Joanne they're friends of Chrissy's from AA. Phil's thorough. He's walking around with a fucking dossier on Christopher Maltesanti over here. I always thought it was kind of surprising she doesn't know who Phil is. She doesn't keep tabs on her son's colleagues, on the news and all, class of 2004, the wife of Dickie Moltisanti, not up to date on current events. Certainly possible. Just reasonable minds could differ is all. Also with regard to Phil, What happened to mothers, wives, and kids? Aren't they off limits in this thing? He forget that? The language, the physical touching of a made man's mother? This guy's Guy Pierce in Memento with amnesia over here. Pierce's character in the film, for what it's worth, was called Leonard. They noticed Chrissy's car out front. Couple of things here, too. Chris wasn't discreet. Contrast that with how discreet Tony B was when he parked his car out of sight. Yeah, I know, as discreet as one can be in a vintage Cadillac convertible, but still. Interesting distinction and worth noting since so much of the last several episodes have been a constant sizing up of Tony B versus Christopher. Chris got himself a gun and waits. He's playing defense, not offense, though. Ben Wallace over here. Joanne says he's in California or Vegas and breaks away. Kind of surprised that Chris let that shit slide. His own mother. It wasn't leaderly restraint either. It was self-motivated fear, self-preservation. Pine Baron's instincts or something. But now, at a minimum, Chris has legitimate beef with Phil. And this could become a story point later in the show. Whether it does or not, 
the seed has been elegantly planted here. Cut from Chris with a gun to Tony with a dustbuster. No, wait, that's a cock gun. He's sealing up loose ends, metaphorically and literally, this episode. Tony and Carm complain about AJ. We haven't gotten a lot of AJ on screen recently, but we're getting caught up that all that off-screen time has led to more and more regression. So much so that getting into East Strasburg State is even a long shot at this point. No disrespect to East Strasburg State, of course, which is a school in Pennsylvania, thankfully for Carmela, only about an hour away from home, and where, surprisingly, a lot of NFL talent, both players and coaches, have been groomed over the years. Fashion aside, Carmela's blouse. Also Hermes? To go with the scarf? Tony compares AJ to Salvitro's kid, working hard in the back, The visual of the two of them made me wonder what a spinoff series of the two of them might look like. You could call it single-handed. Get it? Poverty is a great motivator. That's true on so many levels. Early, unproven writers. Rocky 1 versus Rocky 3. Once things get too comfortable, since time immemorial, AJs are an occasional byproduct. Tony and Salvitro lock eyes and were instantly reminded of Feech and that whole landscaping debacle, of which Salvitro, the innocent and unprovoked, got the brunt of it. He's still working at Tony and Johnny Sachs for free, two of the biggest lawns in North Jersey. Now, the last time that we saw him working, it was at Johnny Sachs. And the fact that we're going to end at Johnny Sachs gives a great sense of spatial satisfaction, that we have a strong grasp on this season and we're ready to say goodbye to it, at least for now. Tony thinks they gave AJ too much, and he's right. But protective mom that she is, Carmela immediately cuts him off and brings up Meadow. Same house, same everything. And she's right. Who's going to break the stalemate? AJ's coach. Tony's planning on having a chat with him. Maybe he's the answer they suspect. Just not if he's like Coach Molinaro. Wonder if Tony had another one of those dreams ahead of this conversation. Next, Hugh comes in. Calls Carm her amaretto cookie. Personally, I'm a big fan of Mel. Macaroons are what they are, but that's their thing. And the continuity of hearing him say Mel in white caps and now in the season five finale would have been nice. But what is this, a fucking Hallmark store now? Hughes with Ignatz, the architect. Latin root is Ignis, meaning fiery one. He, of course, is played by production designer Bob Shaw, who I got to talk to some time ago. Great guy. Meadows blown away by the size of the project. Three stories. Meadows serves as this episode's talisman for the number three. Now, this just occurred to me, and I'm just messing around here. There's no veracity to any of this. Or maybe there is. Junior had this preoccupation with varsity athletes. And way back when, he even talked to Tony about how he squandered his baseball talent as well. It was like 2 a.m. when I was putting the outline together for this, and that moment between the two of them just popped into my head. And I followed it. I asked myself, 
who was the greatest ball player to wear the number three? Well, I didn't have to look far. It was Babe Ruth. And guess what number Honus Wagner was? 33. Over at Chris's place, the Carm phone call scene. It's completely gone to shit. Parallels what we saw with Uncle Pat's exterior shot. Life without aid, take one. Hard cuts of him going through the nightstand, pulling out jewelry, then a shot of a picture of the two of them, phone rings, and the digital display reads T Soprano. A little fucking discretion, maybe? It rings three times before it answers. Three again. Safe to say at this point, a season finale full of threes. The Wizard of Oz had the yellow brick road. The Sopranos has threes. It's Carm on the line. She's looking for aid. Made me wonder if Chris had rehearsed answering questions about her or if he was just winging it. I feel like the story, the lie would have to be tight, ironclad, so it didn't get muddled up the more it got repeated. As elaborate as Tony's spiel to Adriana was about Christopher's suicide attempt in Ramapo, Chris had to have scribbled this down or booted up his laptop to bang out a draft or at least get the drip on one. Carmela, firmly embedded in her deniability bubble, explains that Fortunoffs was waiting on her to get back to them about her china pattern. Chris's tweaked face is high caliber. Fortunoff, by the way, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2009. No, it wasn't because of Adriana's unfulfilled registry, but because of the housing crisis in 2008. They still managed to do some business online. and out the back of a couple three crown vicks. Back to Chris's script. He deadpans. We broke up. Besides blatant lies, his plot twist is playing the victim. She broke up with me, stiffed me on the club, places rudderless. He's rudderless, truly, now. She was it for him. Also, love that word rudderless. A lot of mileage with that word. I wish I could reach her, Carmela says. Is there a number? Not that I know of. So clever. Right up there with Tony saying, I'll see you up there. Last episode. Love Carm trying to help him in the form of the most banal, overworked bit of advice. There's other fish in the sea. Where the fuck does that come from anyway? A variant of it dates back as far as 1573. And it's made its way into many songs over the years, from Stephen Foster in 1862 to more recently, Phil fucking Collins. Chris puts all the jewelry in a bag. Love that there's no context, no telling, just fucking showing. We figure it out or piece it together however the fuck we can, given what we know about these lives that we have true actual footage of on a weekly basis. Before leaving the apartment for what feels like possibly the last time, Chris looks like Tom Hanks in Castaway, alone on that island. We cut from a scene out of an Edward Hopper painting to a scene from Ratatouille. Ray Rat Curdo, 
this fucking guy. I think my disdain for him stems from the fact that he's been ho-humming along since the beginning, and we came to know it late in the game. He's the OG rat, and he's been contorting and discombobulating his spineless cartilage like a real rat to fit through the creeks and crevices undetected, outsmarting the rat traps every which way, burrowing into attics and under kitchen sinks, building little fucking nests, little fucking rat perches. Okay, I'm done. Some of that is still my pain from the 2002 Western Conference Finals, and I project some of that into Ray fucking Curdo. I admit, I gotta put it somewhere. Some people work out, others axe throw. I curse at Ray Curdo. Set about their earning, Ray's doling out the goods, breaking the sacred seal. Relax, sacred is in air quotes. He's got a microcassette of T and Vito Spatafort talking about a bus station project. What bus station project? Wait, Ray, I take everything back. Bus station project. Pray tell. But Agent Grosso is more interested in Adriana. Feds think she took off or most likely got clipped. And Curto's in the dark. Can't even remember what he's given to them and what he hasn't. Open fucking book, this guy. And therein lied my concern about Christopher keeping his story straight with everybody that was inevitably going to confront him about it and ask. Finally, Curdo's on a first-name basis with other guys in the detail. Ike and Tina Turner over here. Curdo working the room, hitching his wagon to their star. Fuck Ray Curdo. Spoke too soon. Later, at Ray Curdo's birthday dinner, T's running late. Silvio, master of ceremonies over here, says to start without him. They're celebrating Ray Curdo. Oscar Wilde level irony over here. Just fuels the disdain, right? Larry Berezi says, the ancient Romans had a word for him. Asshole. Thanks for saying what we're all thinking, Larry, and then some. Pauly snaps the help to have a place setting taken away. Chris's, south with the geese, code for lambing it, for fear of retaliation over Billy Leotardo, right? But he's not in Florida. That puts him in a lamb purgatory of sorts. He can't be home, and he's not in Florida. If purgatory was a place in New Jersey, where would it be? Trenton? Dante's Inferno over here. Bobby's scared for himself, and he doesn't shy away from putting it out there, asserting himself in the pecking order. Kind of strategic, too. I'm his brother-in-law. But Carlo Gervaisi humbles him a little. Not so fast. You think New York is really going to come for you, Bobby? That's a great precursor to a line about Bobby in the final season. Stay tuned. Hesh calls Christopher a logical sacrifice bunt. And you wonder where the sports analogies come from. Next, Polly weighs in. If you're them, you want somebody close to Tony as possible. Bobby is in a pinball machine of irrelevance over here. All due respect, though, the group concurs. This is going to cost everybody. Vito echoes the group sentiment. He's a politician this episode. Chris Christie over here. 
they're willing to go down in a blaze of glory. John Bon Jovi style and all. But not over an off-the-reservation cocksucker killing a non-entity. Then, Tony comes in. Everybody tightens up, mouths and sphincters alike. And Tony senses it immediately, but summons the I'm not running a fucking popularity contest gene and marches forward across his proverbial Rubicon. Says hi to Vito, calls him Vito Misto. Was that a sign for us, portending next season? Like Caesar, Tony hugs his traitor, hands him a bottle of a Cudo di Soprano, a good one from 1958. Tony explains some of his ancestors were winemakers in Avellino. Tell that to the feds, you smug fuck, you fuck you. Sidebar, those bottles score very high and sell well still. This particular bottle also says Tarasi on it, which is a town in Avellino. Tarasi wines generally come in three varieties of grapes. But what am I, a fucking sommelier now? I've never had a bottle, but I just ordered one online and will write a review Miles Raymond from Sideways would be proud of. And I've never done a WNBA reference, so all due respect, here it the fuck is. Diana Taurasi, the White Mamba, as named, of course, by Kobe. Vito says it's going to be a treasure. Robert Louis Stevenson over here. Tony cuts him off. Yeah, well, whatever. Kind of gives you the sense Tony heard him coming in. Something's off there. Next, Tony hams it up with Larry Boy, but no one else. He says he can't stay, and the guys do the obligatory, oh, whoa, nose. But what was unique about Larry Boy in this instance, other than throwing him some lines? This is a reach, but worth mentioning. Was Tony suspicious of Larry Boy because he's been MIA on house arrest for some time? Did Tony suspect there was a rat in the room just homing in on the wrong target? Tony makes an announcement about TB. He went into business for himself, he explains. He's got a problem with rage. Again, this coming from Tony. Rich, right? Tony instructs he's not giving him up to them, assuming he knew where he was in the first place, which we know he, of course, does, thanks to last episode. But these guys don't. The reason why? He won't let them torture him. I am offering him the same protection that I would offer any of you in similar circumstances. I don't know what you're going to say. You're going to say, hey, Tony, I would never do what he did. God bless, I hope not. But we are a family. And even in this fucked up day and age, that means something. So we're going to deal with this as a family, together, no matter how it affects anybody, personal safety-wise, financially-wise, whatever. Also kind of ironic, given what just happened with aid. And if this reach is true, that he was sniffing out rats at the beginning of this brouhaha. The final piece about Chris lambing it That went straight to the feds. You catch that? As far as we know right now, Ray is recording all this shit. And it's pretty meaty. The feds have enough juice to capture a murder or series of them. Minority report over here. Patsy, 
several beats after Tony leaves, says thank you. Why the sarcasm? Piss in the pool wasn't enough for this guy. Lot of cake and eat it too knock around guys at this table. Cut to Carm looking at spec house inspiration stuff. Constructing a mood board over here. To her surprise, Tony comes in. Says he left early. He had no other plans, just didn't want to be there. I kind of like that. The decision of what to do about Tony B is clearly weighing on him, but it also came off as a thinly veiled blow at the crowd in that room. They got no idea what it's like to be number one, and quite frankly, have nothing to add to the matter except grievances and long faces. To quote Tony, You think you're the only one? Wayback machine moment. Carm's sweater and hair. Farrah Fawcett over here. We watching Charlie's Angels now. She asks about Chris. Tony lies on a dime. He drops lies like white chocolate dropped no look passes in transition. Comes up with a great song and dance, especially impactful since he looks worn down. Almost bottomed out. But he can flip a switch on a dime. He's like flu symptoms Jordan in the NBA Finals. Or was it a pizza? Or was it a hangover? Will we ever know? Tony can be twisted and contorted on the insides, but he'll project whatever he has to, whenever he has to, to keep this thing, this lie, this myth going. Some have said in the past that Tony doesn't work very hard. But I'd argue that this mental gymnastics he has to go through, self-inflicted or not, is some of the hardest work there is. AJ comes in, heads upstairs on the phone, no interaction or acknowledgement. Throw away, though? Never. This is building towards something. And these little glimpses we see, mere tending of the garden. A little food for the roses followed by an evening mist. You got yourself a little quarantine green thumb over here. Karma's convinced Aid was seeing someone else. Seasoned, she buys into the lies and myths without even asking a follow-up question. At least not yet. She brings up movie night at the house. Remember when Adriana tripped over herself after storming out? There was always more there that at least her or Roe should have seen. Tony stone-cold Steve Austin's the matter with a you-never-know-about-people as he holds a plate of about-to-be-warmed-up chicken parm. One of the few things in Carmela's kitchen you gotta warm up. Cold chicken parm is criminal. Cut to later that night, Tony watching the History Channel. We talked about the periphery of Rhodes last time as being a release valve for an overworked mind. Well, that same analog applies to the History Channel for Tony. This particular installment also happens to provide a dual service in the form of Melfi-esque counsel. We hear what he hears. His plans were often instinctive, spontaneous, and not infrequently obscure. His men idolized him and had boundless faith in him. We're applying these words to our liege here, Tony, but the TV is referring to Johannes Erwin Eugene Rommel, a German World War II general was once close to Hitler, but then later implicated in his assassination attempt. Valkyrie over here. Another subtle parallel to the show, too. Powerful, close allies who turn. 
Rommel killed himself to avoid shame and remain a national hero in the eyes of the people. He apparently cut that deal. And Hitler apparently honored it. Tony's enjoying a couple of scoops with his feet up. And Carm comes in. Similar camera angle, similar moments. Jogging our memories, seating us firmly in the soprano land if we weren't completely there already. These patterns, though, they're welcome anchors. And so well lit. Does Carm have an agenda? Is she coming in for an ask? There's a moment where Tony spies her and shoots lasers at her as if bracing. What now? But she's just there to sit with him. Zero agenda. Just company. Her, Tony, and that Yadro on the end table. She rests her head on T, not realizing that she's impeding his ability to properly navigate the trajectory of the ice cream from the bowl to his mouth. She's thinking about her speck, almost like she's waiting for it to call her on the phone. He's not put off by her, but he's taken aback that she's just sitting next to him. He's so used to everybody around him wanting something. Then we get a quick cut to her upstairs, looking overly sexual, and for a beat, it feels like she's getting into bed with Tony. But she's not. The speck called, after all. And she gets into bed with blueprints. And her eyes lock in on the his and hers bathroom portion of the drawings. MTV Cribs over here. Back on Tony watching more History Channel. All this regularness of life shit. 15 minutes into a finale. Nothing's happening. We've only got 40 minutes left. What gives already? That's the default position for a lot of people. But this is layered, man. This shit is a fucking onion. He's prepping for war with Johnny Sack. He's doing research through osmosis. Through distillation. Walter White over here. On TV, the hagiography of Rommel continues. He had what the Germans called, I'm going to try this on one take, finger spitzenfuhl. Someone with great situational awareness and the ability to respond most appropriately and tactfully. Every grain of the show is intentional. Are we talking about Tony? Johnny Sack? Both of them? Dancing around the ring like Rocky and Apollo after the Clubber Lang fight? Remember that thing Rocky owed him? Guess we'll see at the end of the episode. Cut to Christopher walking conspicuously and with that signature pep in his step. This whole scene is great spatially. Again, that's so satisfying. We're in a new environment and a finale, however regular and otherwise inconsequential. We're watching him from someone's car and they're listening to Van Morrison's Glad Tidings off the Moondance album. Now, I'm not going to lie. This episode had me at Van. But its use and choice is executed to perfection. It stoned me to my soul. Clandestine Chris over here. Fishing cap, dark glasses, collar flared. Real subtle guy. Gets into the passenger side of that IROC Z we saw him and Benny in during the Feech ambush. Silvio comes to the window. It was his car, his music. For a second, though, the thought crosses your mind that Chris was made. 
and maybe Phil Leotardo was standing on the other side of the glass. This makes sense when we see a similarly shot and angled scene with Benny Fazio and Phil down the road here. It's a mirror image of this sequence, actually. Interestingly, the music's still playing, though. It's confusing. Were they both listening to the same thing at the same time? Same station? Highly likely. That or Silvio Bumps' music up in the club style and we could hear the trace notes emanating from his whip. Silvio hands him an envelope with 1500 in it. Says Claude Rains. Aside from the resemblance, he's possibly referencing his role in The Invisible Man, since that's what Christopher is now. That or Lawrence of Arabia modified to Lawrence of the Tri-State area. This should tide you over. That while listening to Glad Tidings. I see you, writers. Always wondered how quickly Chris would burn through that cash if he had succumbed to his drug dependency. And some of Silvio's body language conveyed the same. How much was enough, but not too much so he goes over the top and compromises them again. Chris offers him food, took a couple seasons, but he finally got to Roy Rogers. Silvio's looking at Chris condescendingly. Was it Chris's nonchalance? Him eyeballing Chris to see if he's compromised too? Silvio knows the truth about Adriana. Would he keep that a secret? Is he that loyal to Tony? Or will he be a loose lip that sinks that ship? Given that he basically has a whole crew of allies that would support him, and we know he said just last week that some people are better being number twos, but here, it's at least positioned that Silvio is weighing options. Daydreaming, or a combination of both. Chris says he couldn't even fence jewelry. AIDS jewelry, recall. That's like a middleman for criminals. Fucking eBay this guy. Chris starts complaining, ongoing at this point, about Tony B, and Silvio puts him in place. Part of me always felt like Silvio thought he was compromised too. Like we said last episode, nothing will ever be the same for Chris again. He's lambing from New York, but he's also quite literally lambing from us too. At a bare minimum, he's suspect, and the taint of Adriana could prove hard to wash. Jumping on the name that sacrifice bunt bandwagon, Benny's concerned for himself too. He was Tony's driver after all. Next, we're going to hear from the guy that mowed Tony's lawn. Salvitro a target now too? Chris asks what Tony B has on this guy. And on that, we hear Van. The lyric, glad tidings from New York. The interconnectedness and little detail is overpowering here. Cut to the Silvio-Tony sit-down. Silvio comes in to talk to Tony at the back of the bing. Says he's there to call Trisha because her old man died. Is that one of the girls at the bing? Or a gumad? Or both? He rifles through a Rolodex. Same way Phil's been for his new wingman. Then Sil admits he's been hanging around on purpose. He's hesitant. Enough so that Tony immediately smells blood. Oh, look, I've been your consigliere for a lot of years. Don't go into a fucking preamble. Just tell me what's on your mind. You got some unhappy people out there. Love that line. Love that line so much. Use it as regularly as I possibly can when appropriate, and sometimes to my detriment, when it's not appropriate. 
A lot of people are unhappy, we learn. Older guys. Guys that predate Tony. Fucking Polly at all. Love that Sill says he's not saying nothing, but he just said the whole enchilada, which is a human tendency, right? Super relatable. Saying you're not going to say nothing, but then saying every fucking thing. Tony's position is firm. I give him up, we can give the whole fucking thing up. Here's where the conversation gets difficult. Then Sill shows us something we've never seen before. All due respect. There's that fucking preamble again. This whole episode is a preamble. To the end. And I love the detail of Tony ashing his cigar on the beat of him receiving Silvio's all due respect preface. God, it's so good. I can't continue. I need to watch it several more times to attempt to construct something fucking sensible to say about it. I'll cut out the time gap. Okay, I'm back. All due respect, Silvio explains, you made a bad call and you don't want to eat shit from John. Basically, Sill tells Tony his business, character development style, in a writer's room over here. But Tony thinks otherwise. What the fuck do you know what goes on in my head? I know you said you were a kid, Tony. Frankly, you've got a problem with authority. I kind of appreciate Silvio for not relenting here. There are seven deadly sins, and yours is pride. Fucking Canterbury Tales over here. Not to mention the film Seven. I'm going to feast on that line for a couple, three seconds. The sins, of course, are part of Christian doctrine and include, and this is me doing my Morgan Freeman impersonation complete with the finger count. There are seven deadly sins, Captain. Gluttony. Greed. Sloth. Wrath. Pride. Lust and envy. Fun exercise. Who gets what sin applied to them in this series? Gluttony's gotta be Bobby, right? That's kind of an easy one. Greed, a little tougher. But the most greedy might have been, what, Ralph? Because he didn't want to go out of pocket so he killed an innocent horse? An innocent creature? Ostensibly, of course, relax. What's next? Sloth. Hmm. AJ. Or maybe Jackie Jr. Hard to pin down sloth, top of my head. Next, wrath. Tony B makes sense, especially right now. Unsanctioned, reactive hit. Pride. I'd give that one to Johnny Sack, the king of New York. As pride does come before the fall, as we'll see at the end of this episode. What about lust? Gloria, perhaps? And finally, envy. Christopher fits a little. He wants what he can't have and doesn't want to fully commit. One shoe cocksucker over here and a one-foot-out-the-door cocksucker over there. The way the camera moves in on Silvio as he tries to level with Tony to counsel him through this creates an appropriate amount of tension for an explosive encounter between them. 
But it isn't exaggerated. It's focusing. And we're foaming at the mouth for what comes next. The writers know this right there. What we say next is the payoff for this tense, potentially world-changing encounter. Sopranos world, that is. Relax, I know this isn't the fucking UN now. Geopolitics and shit. This is two wise guys in the back room of a strip club trying to one-up each other. But in reality, and why this show matters so much, is it could be any one of us talking to a friend on a Wednesday night. Knowing the gravity of this moment, here's what Chase delivers. All due respect, you got no fucking idea what it's like to be number one. Every decision you make affects every facet of every other fucking thing. Tony leans in like a tech entrepreneur trying to iterate for a power user. Gets the last word on all due respects ping pong over here. And he closes it out on his serve. And in the end, you're completely alone with it all. I'm sorry you feel that way. This is the course I've chosen. And those of you that are not with me on it, well, that makes me say it. And it'll be dealt with in time. Silvio simply gets up, walks in front of Tony. You need me for anything else? And Tony blows him out of the frame like a leaf in the wind. Next. Crazy Horse Exterior. Remember when over here. Inside, Benny's enjoying a meal and some metal. Quite an elaborate meal, I might add, coming out of the crazy horse. He might very well have had access to the off-menu options. In the distance, he notices something enough to make him put on his glasses. It's fucking Phil, limping his way through the crowd. Benny books for his car, and somehow, someway, limping Phil turns into Usain Bolt Phil and shows up at the window of Benny's whip, paralleling that scene we saw with Chris and Syl earlier, remember. Phil explains he was listening to WFAN and saw a guy that used to drive for Tony. He's looking for Tony's friend. Which one, though? Christopher or Blundetto? Maybe both. Benny tries to escape. Put that shit in reverse, bro. If he had, you think we'd be sitting in this predicament? Phil nine-irons him to within an inch of the hole, so to speak. And Phil's menace is summed up to perfection with just three words. It's a start. Three fucking words. Power-packed with enough menace to light a city. To quote Gloria, gets you pow right in the kissa. From the darkness of the Crazy Horse parking lot to the overpowering bright lights of a hospital-admitted patient wing, Tony comes to see Benny, surrounded by the elder statesmen of his crew. Prognosis? Fractured skull. Tony explains that the Plumbers Union health plan will take care of this. Says it as loud as he can, as if all the extra cracks in Benny's skull weren't enough for the message to seep in. Tony continues, of course, in code that Benny's going to get his stripes or close to it when he's out of here. He's saying that for Benny's benefit, certainly, but 
also feels a little like he's trying to acquiesce the mob he senses coming for his door with pitchforks instead of envelopes. Remember, in many ways, this thing of ours is a workplace drama. Also, we learn that Larry Boy is Benny's godfather, but he's MIA because of house arrest. Air quotes. Fucking guy can get to a comp dinner and joke about brass balls, but can't see his godson fighting for his life in the hospital? Duplicitous at every level. Every station, come what may, these guys are. Fucking Yoda over here. Gotta say, also a little surprised Tony's walking around without protection. Especially around a hospital where New York knows a lot of these guys are because of what happened to Benny. Perfect Godfather 1 style ambush, or at least the possibility of one. Eugene Pontecorvo is beside himself. Wants the okay to go to Brooklyn and clean some timepieces over there. Great modification of the turn of phrase, clean someone's clock. And Vito, fucking Napoleon over here, says if this continues, they should take Tony out. This episode, Tony's own family is conspiring against him. New York is conspiring against him. And as we'll see at the end, possibly the feds too. But he escapes from them all, unscathed. The fucking luck on this guy. And then we get something special. Tony's scrambling, uncertain of his leadership, isolated, alone. So where does he go? To his uncle's. The same man who sanctioned a fucking hit on him in season one. Remember that? The irony of that is incredible. Again, even Oscar Wilde rolled in his grave on that one. Junior's ordering a fruit basket for Mel. He had a stroke. Tony assumed it was for Benny. Of course, we're talking about Melvoin, the lawyer. He won't be able to work for nine months to a year, which means Junior's trial will have to be postponed. This is what good news looks like in The Sopranos. And we'll fucking take it. Tony wants advice. What to do. Familial counsel. Fuck that consigliere shit for a second. But Junior's in another place. And all due respect, this is his preamble. The preamble to his end. Tony wills his focus into place at least this one last time, right? I pinned myself into a corner here, and I don't see a way out. Such a universally relatable line. Erase the plot and the occupations here, and this is regularness of life shit. All of us, to a T, can latch onto and mine for our own situations. Even though it's a fucking TV show, I get it. But it's written by people, real people, who are exploring universal themes and working through their machinations for us on screen with a lot of HBO's dollars, and we are the beneficiaries of the wisdom, roadmaps, or ancillary benefits here. Junior says Benny wasn't made, but thinks Benny is Phil's brother. He's all over the place, but he has the mental bandwidth to drop the word nonplussed. Fucking Kaplan test prep over here. Whatever the reason, it's the perfect word to sum up both of them right now. Tony's look as he lingers at the door says it all. In a lot of ways, he said goodbye to his uncle as he knew him right there. 
Remember to come back to this moment as the series comes to an end. Cut to a perfect interlude scene where Carlo and Larry Beresi are walking through the front of the pork store for some grub. Again, Larry Boy left the house to mange. Fuck a guy on his deathbed, right? They're complaining about how the wrong person got sent back to jail. Should have been Tony B, not Feech. Disgruntled workers and office politics, soprano style. Carlos worked up about that imported provolone he never got to sink his teeth into. Pun somewhat intended. Westchester instead of Rahway. Could be a line in a Bruce Springsteen song. Also, sidebar, but we haven't gotten such a nice cross-section of the inside of Satrials before. It's usually still frames, exteriors, or the back room. We're in the customer section here. And again, unique to this episode in many ways, a lot of satisfaction and payoff for the viewer on a spatial level. Last time we saw this much of the inside of Satrials was the dream sequence in Tennessee Moltisanti. Larry Boy calls the imported provolone liquid gold. I didn't follow that. How is cheese liquid gold? Maybe buffalo mozzarella. But fucking provolone? Unless he's thinking about the melted provolone in a cheesesteak like I am right now. Just postmated that shit. Brass tacks. They want Tony to give Tony B up. Lock, stock, and barrel. Bobby interrupts a conversation he didn't have a fucking thing to do with and says Tony doesn't know where Tony B is. Now tell me something. If Syl doesn't have a fucking clue what it's like to be number one, all due respect, then how the fuck does Bobby know what Tony knows or doesn't know about anything? Larry Boy is convinced Tony knows, though. So much so that he adroitly pulls the word adroit out of the inside of his tracksuit like he's Daft Punk or something. One more time. He explains Tony knows how to protect his own. At all costs. It's the rest of these guys that need to fend for themselves. To extend the Daft Punk thought, every man for himself. Harder, better, faster, stronger. Finally, love the sound design of Larry Boy's chin gesture as we cut to Melfi's office. She mentally gives Tony the same gesture here in just a moment. Importantly, she anchors both sides of the show. She's propping this baby up. We are lacking closure and clarity, and she's here to help us as much as him. Her time slot in the show is right in the middle, which is significant, but just before Tony has to make some hard decisions or things he's unable to get answers from anybody. Like Morrissey said, do you really think she'll pull through? She starts off by asking about life now that he's back home. Tony, who's wearing a killer blazer, by the way, checks his watch and stalls. Why is he giving her a fucking preamble? Get into it already. Melfi's face is saying what Tony said to Silvio a couple minutes ago. He chooses to completely ignore her prompts and brings up the dream from last episode. It's his world after all, right? He calls it a recurring one, which is interesting only because we're at the end of what was ostensibly the finale of the entire series, and we've only seen or heard about it once. Now, all of a sudden, it's Coach Molinaro this and Coach Molinaro that. Then he proceeds to lie right to her face. Says the coach thought I was special. 
and she, ever so gently, asks why he's bringing it up now, calling bullshit in a passive-aggressive way. But he has a reason, and it's that he talked to AJ's coach, so naturally it was top of mind. Another kid on the team, we learn, is eating into AJ's minutes, and Tony says it's because AJ's focus is on academics. What in the actual fuck? Why is Tony giving the ultimate preamble of bullshit here? The beats, the lingering, the eye contact. Melfi's reading him like a Chilton's manual. Never defeated, she forges ahead. How's things on other fronts? Sharp cut to Tony looking down and away. She's tapped into something. Her version of liquid gold. Of the Brent crude mental angst variety. Daniel Day-Lewis over here with that milkshake straw. Tony starts bubbling. You touched on something there that's not so good. And she acknowledges how difficult it is to treat him. The real progress of therapy gets cock-blocked every time. Tony keeps shoveling the shit, but she's impervious to it at this point. She takes his I-care-about-him-so-much spiel and reminds him that his feelings for TB are predicated on guilt and shame and a lot of bullshit. It's just that it doesn't it's matter now. It's just that here we are, as always, back at square one, with you going into high sentimentality mode. Square one is a nice callback to the pilot. But her bottom line is, own your feelings, man. He just got a mouthful from Silvio, and now Melfi. How much more of this is he going to be able to take before he topples like he did with Johnny Sack on the golf course again? It's my mess. All my choices were wrong. Now, hang on that line for a minute. What choices were wrong? Joining this thing of ours to begin with? Handpicking Christopher to be his heir apparent? Not being a better son? Empowering Ralphie too much? Bringing old blood back into the game when better judgment would suggest all they're going to do is step on toes? Not putting the time in with AJ? Being able to see early on that he would need extra attention? Some kids just do. Whatever the reasons, it's a powerful, reflective line. And a gift for us viewers in the season finale where we get a whole summer to catalog, rank, and map out all of Tony's decisions and how they were wrong. Somebody, tell me I wasn't the only one. Cut to a house party with a cover. AJ's first business venture. Patrick Whalen, remember him? Is collecting proceeds and handing out cups. Proof of admission. Meanwhile, AJ is selectively ousting patrons ad hoc. He's debugging. Then he watches on while two guys wrestle each other over spilt beer and being able to infiltrate the proof of admission with counterfeit cups. A couple chinks in the armor, but AJ's got himself a minimum viable product. And kudos to him for shipping it. He just needs to iterate. I've been reading a lot of books about Silicon Valley recently. Cut to an empty, quiet bing. Spotlight on center stage of absolutely nothing. Is this episode going to amount to a big nothing, we wonder? Is this the ultimate middle finger to us, the critics, and the entertainment industrial complex that is sitting down in unison waiting for this masterpiece to play out? Maybe. 
But it also feels like the Tracy episode for a split second. University. Tony's alone in the back, staring at the phone, the same way I do, like Rolling Stones in Through and Through. Just waiting on a call from you. A callback to the season two finale. Connectivity, folks. Tony Dell's Johnny Sack, who we see adroitly enjoying a croissant, a cup of tea, and a pertinent accoutrement. Tony does his own version of Tony B last episode, building up the courage or trying to figure out what to say or do. Now, cut to Polly's house. He's steaming a suit. And people complain that these guys are glorified? Hilarious as this is, it's also fucking depressing. What kind of guy wants to be in his loins steaming his own shit in a hallway? Tony's at the door. Man, Tony's searching this episode, wandering around like the alchemist over here. And he's hit rock fucking bottom if he's ending up at Polly's door. Tony's pissed that Polly's got beef on the Tony B thing. You want to phone everybody? Was that a dig at past transgressions on the phone with Johnny Sack when Polly was in the can? Always knew Tony figured that shit out. Tony's there to apparently hash it out, but he sees the fucking painting on the wall, which also proverbially serves as the writing on the wall, as we'll see in a moment. What's with the hat and shit? Don't give me, huh? You know what it does to me? To be reminded of that fucking horse? I'm sorry, T. But you never come here no more. I didn't figure it'd be a problem. Doesn't Paulie know how Tony feels about fucking hats? I certainly do. I think about it every single time I put one on, which is literally every fucking day. I don't have a modern look in here. So go with something more traditional. Something that catches more of what you're really all about. A goddamn lawn jockey? That's not a lawn jockey. That's a general. Is Paulie scared or authentic right here? You don't come around here no more. Is that calculated or genuine? It's unclear, which means it's perfectly played. Paulie couldn't fucking sell it. Tony rips the painting off the wall and throws it in the trash. Then he backs into cracked eggs on the floor. Cracked eggs. Looking at the painting in the trash, the camera trains on the hand and the sword. And we hear Polly's words in our heads right then. General. The close-up on Tony, I think the closest wide shot we've ever seen of him to this point, is realization about what must happen. About what he must do. How ironic, right? That Tony found his personal legend, to extend the alchemist reference, inside a place he doesn't come around no more. Paulie's house. It's fucking perfect. And we fade in glad tidings again. Twice this episode now. There's a great shot of Tony B driving around upstate in a big, beautiful black Cadillac with the massive attack white walls. Feech's Cadillac, recall. Driving through what could be the Meadowlands and that tall blonde grass that always conjures up the Godfather, 
Also perhaps symbolic that bloodshed is imminent. Cut to a red barn. That painting wasn't a fucking scam, Tony. It's been leading to this for 16 fucking years. Tony B pulls in, and I love the way the camera follows the opening, as if someone were walking towards it. Great anticipation, setup, buildup, all the fucking ups. Out comes Tony B with a bag of groceries and a momentary brandish of his piece. A piece that would make Ben fucking Wade of 310 to Yuma jealous. Hometown proud is on his grocery bag. That was a common slogan on IGA grocery bags. Oddly, I learned that a few years ago doing a crossword puzzle. We see Kellogg cash inside the bag with what we can read as a world where dreams come true. Solidly not coincidental. He hears the creaks in the floorboards and around the bend comes Tony. Fucking Western style. The backdrop and structure and fading paint is all too classic. The only thing missing for both of them are cowboy hats. And here's a crossword puzzle for you. What's a four-letter word that starts with D for Tony B right now? Here's my thing. The IQ on this guy. Should he have found a better hiding place? A place Tony couldn't deduce over time? Observation. Tony's a sharpshooter. A true professional. Wearing gloves. Gary Payton over here. The blow was fatal, and Tony B spread out over a pile of firewood. Fascinating, natural, and instantaneous funeral pyre of sorts. Tony racks the gun, and we hear the shells clatter. Did he think another bullet was necessary? Or was that readying himself for a witness or possible assailant inside? Tony gets down on one knee, observes his work, and says goodbye. In his own way. At least I think he does as we hear the blood drip down through the floorboards and into that humid soil Uncle Pat's farm was famous for. 16 years in the can all because of a fucking panic attack has come to this. Watching his cousin bleed out over 16 seconds from a single gunshot blow to the head. And the sheer fucking genius of the writing is such that we sympathize for Tony here. He fucking blew a guy's head off in broad daylight. And we feel bad for him Because he has guilt and shame over being mentally weak years ago and now not wanting Johnny Sack to dictate the terms of Tony B's execution. Tony B is dead and maybe spent three months tops enjoying a fraction of whatever version of the good life he was going to get. And here we feel for Tony. Just Tony. How fucked is that? He leaves the gun but doesn't take any cannolis. Or Kellogg's, for that matter. Great choice of the camera looking up at Tony, almost as if from Tony B's vantage point. The direction of his now silent eyes. Paul Simon over here. And that's it. With that, we cut to a beautiful shot of Tony by the water calling Johnny Sack from a payphone. Calm amidst the chaos. The great outdoors. Phil, looking on from a distance, epitome of menace, this guy, Route 146, 9A, Kinderhook. True story. 
That was an actual password of mine for a time. T hangs up, drives off like a bat out of hell for some meatloaf. Later that night, we see Phil approach the house. Again, ever so adroitly. It took him an extraordinary amount of time to notice that Tony B lay there right next to him at the entry, though. Also, a little stakeout, perhaps? Why rush right in? Case the fucking joint, no? A little reconnaissance? Lie in fucking wait? Jesus, this guy's grilled cheeses must have been terrible. He gotta let that shit melt, man. Also, ever wonder what they do to the body? Did they just leave it? Or did Phil put a few extra shells in him for good measure? What sick fuck? Cut to the Bing exterior from across Route 17. That Holyfield and Lewis sign is still curiously on the display. Makes me think it was just reused B-roll. Tony comes in. Bobby and Patsy are playing pool. Or at least pretending to. And Bialis and coffee are on the table for tea. Tony looks like his own version of Ichabod Crane here, like he's seen a ghost. Tony B. was the headless horseman in this case. As he enjoys the truckloads of cash in the safe, Silvio lets Tony know that Johnny Sachs called multiple times and doesn't seem happy. Tony enjoys the Bialis, and Bobby looks on with pride that he did something more than wait in line to pick up stool softener. Sill puts his hand on Tony and exits. The others follow. Tony is left alone at the top, remember? Just him. Then it sort of zoom cuts to later in the day, with him still wrestling through stuff in his brain, fumbling around with the paper. Also universally relatable, waiting for that proverbial fucking phone to ring. And eventually it does. And we get Johnny Sack in an exam room, being completely emasculated compared to Tony, who's a cool customer. It's taken him the whole episode to get to this point, though. Taking care of Tony B was a huge weight off his shoulders. And we see that a little here. Johnny Sachs says what happened doesn't fix a fucking thing. Tony channels Angelo and goes full-blown diplomacy mode. He offers to give Phil a quarter of his points from the Bloomfield thing Tony B was running. Johnny Sack digests it and asks to hash it out in the city later that night after he's subjected to a battery of testing. Tony says he's been tested, too. His IQ is 136, which is, of course, his way of saying he's putting himself in harm's way by coming into the city. Now, was that Tony basing his IQ on the fact that if Tony B had that IQ, his had to be the same or higher? Is that some kind of transitive property or some kind of mathematical axiom? The fuck do I know? What? I got a trophy case of Fields medals now? Johnny Sack offers a second option, 6.30 a.m. at his house, on account that he's got a 9 a.m. to Miami to get shit in line down there. That's how kings in New York roll. You think I'm going to give you our mods with Jenny upstairs? All right, if you don't hear from me, I'll be there. Tony. Which basically means that Tony's life is safe. Tony's somewhat satisfied, says, all right, if you don't hear from me, I'll be there. Almost like he's beginning a counterintelligence campaign of his own. Staking out Johnny's place ahead of showing up there, maybe. Just saying. All the permutations. 
Johnny Sack provides some solace and appeasement. You and you alone. These guys, man. Mono Imano. AK Corral shit over here. And just a couple minutes are left. Down to the wire. How does this play out? What can top Tony B's send-off? But first, cut to Chris in a hotel room. Pizza strewn all over the place. Chris grabs himself a gun again like he did for Phil. Symmetry. And opens the door to Tony. Tony comes in and tells him to take care of Tony B and to personally bury him. Multisanti funeral parlor over here. Open for business. Made me wonder if the embalmed bodies at that mortuary were Bruno Maglis. Next box to check off on Tony's list is the Adriana shit. We don't see the list like before, just assuming he made one for today, the way he's moving through it. Love that we never see this coming. Always felt like it was over and done with. But now, we're going to get fucking forensic with this shit. At least enough to feel like flies on the wall. Tony wants to know what could have or might have slipped. And Chris mentions she was with him for a few collections. Cigarettes this and that. But Tony doesn't give a fuck about that. He's interested in 187s. Ralph or the Bevilacqua brothers. And Tony wonders if Chris could even remember. But he swears. Whatever the fuck that's worth anymore. What's that saying though? To know if you can trust someone, trust them, and you'll either end up with a friend for life or a lesson for life? I might have combined two fucking proverbs there, but I guess that applies here. More than anything though, I think Tony just wants to carve a moat for himself and bide his time with Chris. There's a smell to Chris now that Tony can't get out of his olfactory nerves. First it was the drugs, but now there's this guilt by association taint of being compromised by the feds. And this, remember, goes all the way back to the pilot when he was talking about selling his story to the highest bidder for a quick buck and a lush life. Richard Price over here. Speaking of authors and books, Chris assures Tony that he's off the H. Instead, he's reading and lifting weights. This as Tony looks down at the 10-pound hand weights. Chris promises to prove himself to Tony. To which I always think back to Christopher's intervention. Jesus, is this fucking necessary? Chris, probably partially to swear allegiance to Tony, throws Adriana under the bus hard. Says she ratted him out because she couldn't do five fucking years. Was she supposed to, though? Did she sign on the dotted line of the Omerta operating agreement? Then they embrace, emotionally. But I feel like Tony's head is, keep your friends close, your enemies closer, and you're off the reservation, titular nephews, because a better option hasn't materialized for a robust succession plan, closest. Kiss on the cheek, closest. Looking at this scene and talking with a few of you over the past couple of weeks, there's a Fredo quality to this moment, into Moltisanti in general. The hug that Tony gives Christopher here and the emphatic kiss afterward was very Michael hugging and kissing Fredo on the dance floor on New Year's Eve. I know it was you, Fredo. 
you broke my heart. Cut from that embrace to AJ. Subtle. The contrast between the two of them. He's yammering on the phone again, and Carm comes in and tells him his allowance is revoked until his apps are done. East Stroudsburg State, remember? Then Tony storms in and doubles down. But AJ explains his business side hustle and his mum at best about not sponging off his folks. He's practically honing his Shark Tank pitch. In the hallway, Tony and Carm revel at his burgeoning entrepreneurship. Carmela thinks he could parlay that into event planning. Gay, isn't it? I don't know. Carmela doesn't help any by saying he's always watching a DVD of Steve Rubell, the Studio 54 guy. She's referring to the movie from 1998 about the famous New York City club. Rubell, who was gay, pivoted away from professional tennis to discotheque entrepreneurship, but succumbed to chasing it a little too hard and got caught up. Imagine your best Mike Myers, Dr. Evil image here with the finger. What's notable is that Carmela envisions a scenario where AJ could be the next iteration of Steve Rubell, who famously said the only thing that made more money than his club was the mob. Some people are only cut out to be number two. Cut two. Tony pulling up to Johnny Sachs at the crack of dawn. Note, Sal Vitro's there too. Book ending this episode. The book this guy could write, man. Places he's been, people he's known. Tony and Johnny Sack head in the backyard under the deck. Tony goes into a speech about sons and futures and food on the table. But Johnny doesn't have a son, does he? Punishment has been meted out he says. And Tony says Johnny needs to make Phil accept it. This from a guy who just said, don't tell me what to do, Jimmy. I don't know why, but upon rediscovery, I love that line a little too much. Tony continues, let's talk about the 500-pound elephant in the room. Oh, what's he talking about? Which one? Too fucking clever and too much fun. Thankfully, it was too early and flew right over Johnny Sack's head. Then, Tony Irving explains the series of provocations that led to this moment. Johnny Sack whacked a woman. Carmine used to fuck. Lorraine Caluzzo. But Johnny Sack says she was his second cousin. Wait, really? That changes everything, doesn't it? What are you, the freaking cardinal? Tony says he'll eat K-rations like a soldier, three square meals. There's three again, just saying. You can shut us down financially, fine, but you can't touch my people anymore. Moses over here. Where's the burning bush? Ultimately, meet his price and let's move on. It's about money at the end of the day like he reminded us in Melfi's office earlier in the series. I paid enough, John. I paid a lot. Does he really believe that? Or is he fucking selling? Glen Gary, Glenn Ross over here. John says maybe he could sell it, to which I thought he certainly outlasted Richie April, 
So there's a good probability he can. Then Johnny turns from defending his crew and Phil's legitimate sorrow to shitting on him. Just like that. Again, the duplicity. It's exhausting. I gave him the sports book, but the cocksucker wants more. Consigliere or God knows what. Then Tony takes a page out of Feech's book and shuts the fuck up before he screws this up for himself. They embrace. Johnny Sack softens, glad to be on the same page again, offers him a coffee as two federal agents close in. Tony sees them and then locks eyes with Johnny Sack. That locking of the eyes is an epic beat. He's processing, like, I've calculated this down to the decimal point here. 6,237.5 things. Right in that split second. The .5 is from the half a Snickers bar left in Ginny's stash upstairs. Then he runs. Like that test dream run. Like that Coach Molinaro practice run. Like Franca fucking Potente in Run Lola Run. And it's the best thing ever. Because he puts us on his back and we get to run with him. We get to process all those permutations with him, single-handed. And all our independent, far-fetched, or spot-on theories about how this happened or why it happened and what he's thinking and what's going to happen next. And is this the end? Or will there be another season? Will that fucking bear come out of hibernation and exact his revenge on Tony Soprano here? Just all the many spirited and ridiculous and speculative fleeting thoughts we get while running. When achieving that runner's high. This right here is the Sopranos version of a runner's high. And to use it to close out the season, quite possibly the last one, and then to layer in Van Morrison on top of it all for the third time. There's that number three again. And to give us the tree imagery and all the other tacit imagery that has been placed in various parts of the soft tissue of our brain is a wonderful, special, evergreen gift. To see Johnny Sack be unable to escape from his own house, to slip and fall and be covered in snow like Junior's key lime pie hit him right in the fucking face. He hadn't even gotten to be the king of New York for an entire episode. And now this. To invoke little Carmine, he couldn't even enjoy his success for a fucking episode. And then to watch poor Salvitro continue his trajectory of being the unluckiest son of a bitch alive and get handcuffed and associated with the criminal enterprise whose lawns he helps maintain for zero compensation. That they had guns drawn on him. That Tony escaped the dog lunging at him. 14 federal agents with guns of various shapes and sizes in a full suit with an overcoat to boot and wingtips trudging through snow and slope and grating to get to the steps of a school. What did that mean, I wondered, the significance of the school? To get a clean bill of health from Mink, nice mustache, by the way, is an unanticipated, unprecedented, and unrelenting crescendo to a magnificent season. Tony, indeed, gets his glad tidings from New York. Jimmy Patrillo, we learn, don't tell me what to do, Jimmy, was a fucking cooperator. When I first saw this, I thought it was because of Ray fucking Curdo. 
but these rats are embedded deep. They're everywhere. Johnny was betrayed by his own consigliere. Et tu, Brute? Which is a more than interesting parallel to the dynamic between Tony and Silvio this episode, right? There are at least more than a couple of moments between the two of them where you see Silvio teeter on the brink a little. But in the end, what Jimmy did serves to put Silvio a cut above, at least for now, in the realm of number twos. He might not know a goddamn thing about what it's like to be number one, but he's holding his own at number two. Mink continues, he was talking to a guy, Gendler, and got the whole scoop. Who the fuck's Gendler? The Brooklyn AUSA, that's assistant U.S. attorney, took down the whole Patriot crew, along with Johnny Sack. 18 fucking years. A major kreplak, Mink says. Forget the orange peel beef for a second. We're talking about motherfucking goddamn wonton soup now. Kreplak and psychiatry brought us to this? Then we get more spatial access to the show. We learn Tony and Johnny Sack live just three miles apart. He's concerned about the fact that his car's there still. And Neil makes jokes. But says, maybe Tony should laugh too. They were just there for Brooklyn. Tony wasn't named. That's a partial relief, yes. But another way to think about it is that it's the beginning of the end. All due respect to New Jersey. But Brooklyn's a bigger fish, to go back to what Carmela said. There are many fish in the sea. But when you've got the feds working OC, there's no greater fish than a New York one. Rub a hunchback's hump at the very least, Mink says, to which I wondered, this is what he gets paid the big bucks for? This phone call better not be billable. In the school behind Tony, kids are doing a rendition of Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man. As Tony gathers himself, he should be dancing beneath the diamond sky, like the song instructs. But instead he walks off like Midnight Cowboy or something. And we cut to Tony's house. Exterior shot from afar, like we've never seen before. Place looks like a castle from this angle. A mountainside chateau or something. Chateau Soprano. After all, his ancestors were vintners. Next, we see closer frames of the exterior in much the same way that we saw them at the beginning of the season, in two Tonys. We hear branches, we see movement. Is that two Tonys bear lying in wait? We've come full circle, haven't we? This is what sticking with it feels like. And we know it's about to end. The clock is ticking against us. And right here, when you're watching, you realize how much you don't want it to. No, it's not the bear. It's just Tony. And the choice to drop Van on sight of Tony's bald spot is equal parts comedy and emotion every single time. The knocks on glass. Did one of those just yesterday, actually. I was in a, I was in a race home to make bedtime. Not outrun the feds, but still. Carmela's being Carmela, always steeping us in the normal and the now. From about as far as most of us can imagine life ever being, in one fell swoop, 
we're right back to square one with Tony and his regularness of life adventures and misadventures. And all due respect to every fucking thing else out there, it's still one of a handful of places I always want to be. That's all I got. See you in season six. Wouldn't Jesus, I'll cut you 